Chief Justice, may it please the court. I'm Giancarlo Conoparo. I'm Zach Smith. And welcome to SCOTUS 101, where we break down what's happening at the Supreme Court, what the justices are up to, and other things related to our favorite branch of government. Happy New Year and welcome back to SCOTUS 101. Welcome back indeed. The court is back hearing cases again, and it's agreed to hear many new cases since our last episode, so we'll cover just a few of those here today. How's that sound, GC? Perfect. You want to start us off? Yeah, let's start with the first one that's probably on the top of a lot of people's minds. The court agreed to hear the case involving Colorado's removal of Donald Trump from the primary ballot in that state. The case is named Trump versus Anderson. The sole question the court is being asked to decide is whether the Colorado Supreme Court erred in ordering Trump excluded from the 2024 presidential primary ballot in that state. The case is being fast-tracked, and oral argument is currently set for February 8th. Now, the court also uh, was involved briefly in another case involving Donald Trump. As folks may recall, the court declined to issue certiorari before judgment, as special counsel Jack Smith had requested in United States versus Trump. The D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals did hear oral arguments in that case earlier this week. The judges are being asked to decide whether Trump enjoys immunity from prosecutions for his actions in the aftermath of the 2020 election because, as he argues, they fall within the, quote, outer perimeter of his official duties. Uh, the case was argued already, and I suspect uh, this case and this particular issue will make its way back to SCOTUS in short order. I think that's right. And just for those listeners uh, who don't know, certiorari before judgment is essentially a a request to uh, skip the usual appellate process in the lower courts and jump straight ahead to SCOTUS. Yeah, that's right. So next up, the court agreed to hear two cases, uh, the Food and Drug Administration versus the Alliance for Hippocratic Medicine and Danco Laboratories versus the Alliance for Hippocratic Medicine which it consolidated for oral argument. Both cases raise issues surrounding the Food and Drug Administration's 2016 and 2021 actions to make mifepristone, which is an abortion pill, more easily and widely available, and whether the alliance has standing to uh, challenge those actions. Yeah, I think this will also be a very important case and uh, one a lot of folks interested in the pro-life issue uh, will be watching very, very closely. Next up, the court agreed to hear two cases, Moyle versus United States and Idaho versus United States, which it consolidated for oral argument. In both of these cases, the court is being asked to decide whether the Emergency Medical Treatment and Labor Act, commonly known as EMTALA, uh, which is a federal law that requires hospitals receiving certain federal funding to provide necessary stabilizing care to patients regardless of their ability to pay, whether that law preempts Idaho's Defense of Life Act, which prohibits abortions unless necessary to save the life of the mother. And finally, the court agreed to hear Fisher versus United States, where the court is being asked to consider whether the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals erred in construing 18 U.S.C. 1512C, which prohibits the obstruction of congressional inquiries and investigations, to include acts unrelated to investigations and evidence. This, of course, is important because it could have vast implications for many of the prosecutions related to January 6th, and the case could also have a dramatic impact on the federal indictment against Donald Trump that is currently pending in the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals. If anyone's interested in this latter issue, uh, our colleague John Malcolm had an excellent piece on the Daily Signal uh, where he talked about uh, this exact issue. You remember two months ago when people thought that this term was going to be boring, Zach? 
Never a dull day at the court, GC. <laughs> no, definitely not. What uh, oral arguments do we have this week? Sure. So this is the first week back from its long break. We heard oral arguments in several, or rather, we didn't. The court did. Heard oral <laughs> well, we, arguments listened. In, we listened. We listened. We <laughs> listened. <laughs> <laughs> I'll talk about two of them here. The first one is Sheets versus El Dorado County. This is being litigated by our friends over at Pacific Legal Foundation, and it challenges an exorbitant home permitting fee under the takings clause. Now, the takings clause says that the government cannot take your property without paying you just compensation. Here, Mr. Sheets sought to build a manufactured home on his lot in Placerville, California, but the county said that under California law, it could only give him a permit if he first paid a $24,000 traffic impact fee. (laughs) That seems a little steep, GC. Yeah, no kidding. He's not building a mansion or a shopping mall, but there you have it. (laughs) So the question is, is this a taking? Now, under two older cases called Nolan and Dolan, the Supreme Court held that any conditions that are imposed in exchange for a land use permit must be closely related and roughly proportional to the effects of the land use. But the lower court in this case refused to apply the Nolan-Dolan test, arguing that it only applies to fees imposed on an individual basis, not fees like California's, that is authorized by legislation. Ultimately, the court will have to first decide if fees like these fall under Nolan Dolan and then whether the fee, if it does, uh, was proportional to uh, the traffic use anticipated from Mr. Sheets's home. The second case we'll talk about today is Smith versus Arizona, which is a Sixth Amendment Confrontation Clause case. The Confrontation Clause, of course, says that in a criminal trial, you have the right to confront witnesses against you. Here, one forensic expert prepared an incriminating forensic report that implicated Mr. Smith. No relation, as far as I know. Uh, (laughs) But that expert then left the state's employment, so a different expert testified at trial about the contents of the first expert's report. Mr. Smith argued that this violated his Sixth Amendment rights because he had a right to confront the witness who actually made the report. So if you have been listening to the news anywhere or reading the news anywhere at all, you are definitely exposed to a lot of punditry about the Trump disqualification cases. So to help us break through all of the noise, to engage with the actual academic literature on the meaning of Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, our interview this week is Josh Blackman. And we'll get to that interview right after this. The Heritage Foundation is the most effective conservative policy organization in the country. Every semester, our interns are a vital part of that mission. We pay competitively, we develop talent, and we give our interns access to some of the sharpest minds in the country. We're going on offense, so join us. To learn more about the Young Leaders Program here at the Heritage Foundation, please go to heritage.org intern. Today, we are joined by a returning guest, Professor Josh Blackman, the uh, Professor of Law and the Centennial Chair of Constitutional Law at South Texas College of Law, Houston. Josh is a prolific writer of books, law reviews, and blogs on the Supreme Court and constitutional law. You can read his blogs at the Volokh Conspiracy at Reason.com. But relevant to today's discussion, he has co-authored, along with Professor Seth Barrett-Tillman, an article on presidential disqualification under the 14th Amendment. Josh, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me. So 
Donald Trump has been disqualified from the ballot in Colorado, according to the state Supreme Court, and in Maine by the Secretary of State. Both rely on Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, and the Supreme Court will hear the Colorado claim. So can you uh, give us an overview? What is Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, and what does it say? Section 3 is a provision that didn't really matter for the last 150 years or so. It was passed in the wake of the Civil War. And at a high level, what it does is it says certain people who engaged in the Civil War are then disqualified from holding certain offices. There were different ways of going about this in the 1860s. Uh, One proposal would have been to disenfranchise former rebels. Another proposal said that anyone who was supporting the Confederacy couldn't hold any office. But the 39th Congress settled on something of a compromise, that people who took an oath to the Constitution in certain capacities were then disqualified from holding other certain offices. Um, This provision didn't have a very long shelf life. Uh, Shortly after it was passed, Congress began issuing these very broad amnesties, and it sort of just fell into disuse more than 150 years ago. But in the wake of January 6th, it's like, aha, we have something to get, you know, to get Trump on. And people suddenly started to run to Section 3 and to use this as a way to keep Trump off the ballot. So there is not only a a big debate in the sphere of punditry, but also in the world of legal academia. Your article, well, you and Seth Barrett Tillman actually sort of preempted part of this debate with a law review article about uh, whether the president is an officer. Most recently, you have written a law review article responding to professors William Bode and Michael Stokes Paulson, in which they argue that uh, Trump can be disqualified under Section 3. You know, you mentioned before we get into that debate, can you tell us, have there been any cases in the past where Section 3 was used and uh, give us sort of a rundown of how those cases went? Sure. The litigation sort of began in earnest uh, in the summer of 2023. And lawsuits were brought in Colorado, in Michigan, and a host of other states. And they all made the same claim, that Section 3 disqualified Trump and you need to take him off the primary ballot. That's the important point, the primary ballot. Uh, When the first court's rule was from Minnesota, the Minnesota Supreme Court said, well, it's a primary. People can pick whatever whatever candidate they want, come back to us for the general election. And then a Michigan court said, oh, this is a political question. And then another Michigan court of appeals said, well, you know, this is a matter of state law. The state officials can't do this. Colorado took a different path. The trial court in Colorado held a five-day bench trial uh, on whether there was an insurrection. Um, We did not testify. We did not uh, participate in that proceeding. And the Colorado court said, well, Trump engaged in insurrection, but he's not an officer of the United States as president. And in that regard, the trial court adopted the argument that I advanced and that Seth Barrett Tillman advanced. And this is not a new position. Tillman's been making this point since 2008. No one really cared back then, but it became suddenly very relevant. Uh, It goes to the Colorado Supreme Court where we filed an amicus brief, Seth and I. And the Colorado Supreme Court said... Uh, you know what, Trump, you are an officer of the United States. We affirm across the board, you are disqualified from the ballot. And at that point, it triggered a frantic appeal to the Supreme Court. Uh, the Supreme Court granted certiorari on Friday the 5th uh, and said, we'll hear this case in February, February 9th for oral argument. Now, amicus briefs were due on the 18th of January. 
Uh, Seth and I were ready. We filed early. We filed our brief yesterday, about eight, nine days early. Uh, sure to give everyone some more time to think about it, uh, maybe read it perhaps. Uh, but I think we make the case of why the lower court uh, uh, messed up. Now, before we get into the legal questions about officer, uh, uh, what insurrection is, etc., there's a question that lurks in the background, uh, which is who gets to decide the answers to these questions? Courts, secretaries of states? Is it self-executing? What do you think and what are some of the uh, opinions around, the, around that issue? So this this will get a little bit nerdy, but as a general matter, the Constitution is self-executing in one regard, but not self-executing in another regard. So I'll give you an easy example, right? Um, if the police are prosecuting you, and let's say they're prosecuting you for uh, engaging in protected speech, you're going to raise in your criminal trial, no, you can't do this. The First Amendment protects my speech. You can't violate my free speech rights. Everyone agrees with that. When you use the Constitution as a shield against some state action, you don't need any special legislation from Congress. The, the Constitution is executing its own regard. But what if after the criminal case, you want to sue the government for violating your rights and you violated my First Amendment rights? You need a statute for that. When you use the Constitution as a sword, you need a statute to say, I want affirmative relief against the government, whether an injunction or damages or otherwise. And we have that statute. It's called Section 1983. This is a statute that was enacted in one form or another in the 1870s, a long time ago. We've always had it. So when you say the 14th Amendment is self-executing, it is when you're using it as a defense, but not when you're trying to use it as a sword to seek affirmative relief. And we didn't make this position up. Chief Justice Salmon Schaaf made this position in a case called Griffin's Case from 1869. This case held that the 14th Amendment, Section 3, requires Congress to create legislation that you can't go to a court and seek affirmative relief without that legislation. And if we're right, then the entire uh, Colorado proceeding must come to a halt. All the proceedings must come to a halt. This has to be for Congress to legislate, and no one's followed any process created by Congress. In fact, no one's been indicted for insurrection. There's a federal statute. So all these state proceedings are out of whack. I'll just give a little caveat, Giancarlo. If the Supreme Court says this is for Congress to decide, there's a risk. There's a risk is Congress will decide this on January 6th of 2025 during the joint session of Congress. If you have a Democratic-controlled House and a Democratic-controlled Senate, it's entirely possible that Congress will try to say, Trump, your electoral votes are not valid. Either Biden becomes president or maybe they'll say that Nikki Haley becomes president, whoever it happens to be. But the court, if they take an off-ramp, leaves his issues lingering, which is why we hope the court issues some ruling on the merits and settles this issue definitively. So you said uh, January 5th, 2025, is that right? So, so Trump would almost be president. Yeah. Wow, so, I mean, chaos. the same way that in 2021, Trump supporters said to Mike Pence, don't count votes from states where there was alleged to be voter fraud. Democrats can say 2025, a vote given for Trump is not properly given. He's ineligible. We just won't count it. And then... Biden might become president through what's called a contingency election if no candidate has a majority vote. So this issue is not ending anytime soon. Right. So uh, uh, Professor Baud and, and Stokes Paulson uh, do not read Griffin's case the same way you do. Can you give an overview of their position? There's a couple arguments in Griffin's case. Uh, one, they argue that Chase was simply wrong on the merits, that Section 3 is self-executing. And, and I think, again, 
they don't account for the sort of the sword shield dichotomy in federal courts jurisprudence. And I, I think we're on solid ground there. But they make another argument that's sort of political. They say that Chief Justice Chase was acting for ulterior motives, that he may have been trying to issue a ruling to help, a, to help grease the skids for a presidential campaign. Uh, they, may, they say that he was acting consistently with another case decided with Jefferson Davis. Again, I think it's very unusual for a court to sort of discount a chief justice decision because I think it has political motivations. That's a very dangerous standard that could really jolt our, our, our system of precedent. If we go back and you know wipe out all the cases by people who want to become politicians, there are a lot of these judges, <laughs> William O. Douglas, uh, Charles Evans Hughes, and others. Uh, but I think the, the, the important point is, if the court agrees with us in the sword-shield distinction, then it's very easy to reconcile Chase's opinions and, and hold that, that you need to have federal legislation. And look, it makes sense from a practical perspective. Do you really want a system where all 50 states have a different approach to presidential candidates, that some disqualify and some don't? This is a national election. We only have one position elected nationwide. It's the president with the vice president tagging along. You can't have this sort of disparate standards in all 50 states. So let's move on to the various legal questions. The Supreme Court justices are mostly originalists. So they'll care about the original meaning of the text at the time it was ratified. So what is the meaning of the term officer of the United States? The phrase officer of the United States, in our view, is defined in the Constitution, right? For example, the Appointments Clause says the president shall appoint all the officers of the United States. That tells us the officers of the United States are appointed. The Commissions Clause says the president shall commission the officers of the United States. The president does not commission himself. The impeachment clause separates the president from the vice president. They're listed separately. And then, importantly, you have the oaths clause, which says that all the officers of the United States take an oath. But the president doesn't take an oath as an officer of the United States. He takes an oath under Article 2. The president, George Washington, took his oath of office before Congress even had a quorum to legislate that oath. So there's a very good argument the president never took a separate Article 6 oath. He only takes the Article mm-hmm. 2 oath. So there's a lot of very good evidence that there's understanding. And we didn't make this up. People say it's a secret code. That's that's nonsense. Joseph Story wrote in his commentaries that the president would not be an officer of the United States. And we have authorities going all the way back. John Marshall said officers of the United States are appointed. Uh, Chief Justice Roberts said people don't vote for the officers of the United States. There's authority where people just understand this term means appointed positions. And it's only fairly recently that people said that the elected president would be such an officer. Now, in their article, Bowd and Paulson find support for their claim that the president is an officer by pointing to the ratification debates in the 1860s. What do you make of those those arguments? Well, to be very clear, they don't point to anything about officer of the United States. They point to a different phrase, office under the United States. And in our view, when the Constitution uses different language, it means different things. Uh, there's one colloquy where a, a Reverdy Johnson, who was a former attorney general, says, wait a minute. The text says that you can't become an office under the United States. What about the presidency? You know, he was actually making a very good textual argument. The president's not mentioned. At least Johnson thought that this didn't mean the president. Then another uh, radical Republican, Lot Merrill, said, wait a minute. <clears throat> the president's obviously an office under the United States. And then John said, well, I apologize and so on. And, and people can read this one way. Maybe he was just being polite. Maybe he was being kind. But the important point is he read it the same way we do. But even if... The presidency might be an office under the United States, which we've actually taken no position. Officer of the United States is a different phrase. Now, there's another exchange, a congressional report by five members saying officer of and office under are different. That's in there. 
But they also said that members of Congress can be impeached, which is not a position most people like to say. So there's good evidence, I think, on both sides. But the stronger point, going back to the Constitution, going back to John Marshall, going back to Joseph's story, is that the phrase "officers of the United States refers to appointed positions, not elected positions. Hmm. So another law review article by this time Kurt Lash, he argues that, and I'll quote from an op-ed he wrote in the New York Times summarizing his position, at best, Section 3 is ambiguous regarding the office of the president. What do you make of that sort of third position? Well, look, again, Kurt Lash is only talking about office under the United States, and we've not taken a position there. Kurt has not said a word about officer of the United States. So uh, we don't think this issue is ambiguous. We think there's a lot of authority going from John Marshall to John Roberts saying that an officer of the United States means appointed positions. We think it's a strong position. The other side has not found anyone in 1868 who has said, oh, yes, the president's covered by officer of the United States. This doesn't exist. We found, or actually we've written about, some archival documents uh, from April 1868 right in there, a newspaper from Louisville, Kentucky, saying the president is not an officer of the United States. This article cites the same stuff we cite. It cites the commissions clause, cites the impeachment clause, cites just a story. So the position we're making up is not new. And if we want to be careful textualists, this is how you be a careful textualist. So how about insurrection or uh, engaging in rebellion? What do those terms mean? Well, this is a hard one. And again, our brief doesn't touch the meaning of insurrection. Here's what I'd say. We have an insurrection statute in the books. It was signed to law by President Lincoln. I think in 1865, before the Civil War came to a while, the Civil War was wrapping up. What's significant here is that no one has been indicted for insurrection by Jack Smith. No one, not the Proud Boys, not the Oath Keepers, no one. And I think that tells us that even DOJ isn't sure if there was an insurrection or the people should be guilty of it. Related question, even if there was an insurrection, did Trump engage in it? Um, He wasn't at the Capitol. He didn't smash window. He didn't put on a Viking hat, right? He gave a speech. He had some tweets. Um, whatever insurrection means, I don't think Trump engaged in it. Because Section 3 also says you can't give aid and comfort to enemies. This is a different standard. A- a- enemies refers to foreign nationals, belligerent nations. So whatever happened on January 6th, Trump didn't engage in the insurrection. There's also the issue that his speech was protected by the First Amendment. Uh, there's a, a case called Brandenburg, where unless you uh, incite violence imminently, uh, it's protected. I think the Colorado Supreme Court messes up as well. I don't think there was a, uh, a case under Brandenburg for holding Trump liable. So in their article, Bowden and Paulson make two arguments. They say that the definition of insurrection actually comes from the 1785 Insurrection Act, which is uh, any opposition to the laws of the United States that cannot be suppressed by ordinary judicial proceedings or the powers of the U.S. Marshals. What do you make of, of using that definition instead? Again, I, I'm, we haven't taken a position on the definition of insurrection. I think it's enough to say this is a term that doesn't have a clear understanding. And when we talk about insurrection after the Civil War, everyone knew what it was. We were talking about the Civil War. How that maps onto future controversies is hard. And I would just caution people that if the court sort of gives a broad definition of insurrection, that could potentially sweep in things like Black Lives Matter protests. That could sweep in, you know, when they occupied a city block in Seattle um, there are a lot of riots that affect government operations, and I would be hesitant to go down this road to call those all insurrection because there are significant consequences for those findings. Now, in your article, you're careful to draw a distinction between uh, aiding and abetting enemies versus aiding and abetting insurrections. Can you explain why those two things are different? 
Right, so there are two substantive offenses in Section 3. One is engaging in rebellion or insurrection. That's number one. Number two is giving aid and comfort to enemies. The term enemies has a pretty established meaning in, in public international law. It refers to foreign belligerent nations. So if we were you know, at war with Mexico or at war with England, right, those are our enemies. And it would be a crime to give aid and comfort to those enemies. Uh, no one argues that January 6th involved a declared war. There were no belligerents. So the aid and comfort prong is out. But what Bowdoin and Pulse have done is they've sort of conflated a Frankenstein monster, a new offense. They've said it's a violation of Section 3 to give aid and comfort to an insurrection. Right? But that's not what it says. It's aid and comfort to enemies or engaging in insurrection. And we think engaging is what we call a specific intent crime. For those who remember back to 1L, right? Specific intent crime versus aid and comfort is an indirect offense, accomplice liability. We think it's a mistake to transform a specific intent direct crime, something involving accomplice liability. And that's why the aid and comfort language is very significant. And Trump would have to be shown to actually engage himself in the insurrection. To play devil's advocate, could you make the plausible argument that because Section 3 is aimed at the, at the Confederacy. Enemies, therefore, takes a more expansive meaning than it, than it used to have. It includes insurrectionists. I don't think anyone's argued that the insurrectionists themselves were enemies. It's a pretty well-established term, meaning belligerent nations. Um, so I, I, don't, I don't know that, that you can say the guy with the Viking hat was an enemy um, uh, of the United States. He's still a U.S. citizen, has renounced his citizenship, and so on. Um, if you really want to go down that road, that any time you have people take arms against the government, they're actually foreign belligerent nations, they can be indicted for treason, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, there are consequences with that finding. So I think the court would want to stay away from that. I mean, you can denaturalize. I mean, there's an argument that Jefferson Davis was denaturalized by the act of taking arms and, and leadership from another government. You can remove a citizenship. There are consequences of saying you're a foreign enemy versus just, you know, you're a bad American. Mm-hmm. So besides the obvious ways the Supreme Court could decide the case by, say, holding the president is not an officer, what are some other ways the Supreme Court might resolve the case? Right. So one path, again, is saying that it requires federal legislation, but that kicks it towards January 6th of 2025. Another option is they can say Trump's speech was protected by the First Amendment under the Brandenburg standard. That might appeal to the court's civil libertarians. But again, that requires wading through all the tweets and all the, you know, uh, words in his speech and, and, and what Trump did before. And I just, I can't see the court want to go down that road. Or the court, you know, could just say, screw it, affirm across the board and let's deal with another president for four years. I, I, I don't think that's likely. It's sort of my worst nightmare. The court says, okay, we'll disqualify Trump. We'll get a better president out of it. I just I just think that, that that's, that's unlikely to happen. So if I had to put money down, I think it's either on the office issue or the execution issue. That'd be my prediction. Mm-hmm. And it may be a fragmented court, which is perhaps for the best. Bush v. Gore was a ticket good for one ride. Just, you know, sometimes those, those one-ride tickets are good. All right. So oral arguments will be heard on February 8th. Do you have any sense of when the court is going to decide? What are the competing pressures, slow or fast? Super Tuesday is March 5th. I think we did a ruling before then. So by the end of February, I think we'll get a ruling. So you mentioned that uh, a decision saying that, yes, Trump is disqualified is sort of your worst nightmare. In my mind, echoes an article that Yuval Levin, the director of the Constitutional Studies at AEI, recently wrote where he said, you know, regardless of the legal merits, pursuing the disqualification strategy is damaging to our constitutional order. Is that sort of the substance of your own uh, concern or, or do you have others? 
that's my concern. I'll just put this sort of in blunt terms. Um, a couple of years ago, the Supreme Court decided a tax return case. And at the time, both of the Trump nominees, Gorsuch and Kavanaugh, ruled against Trump. But if you actually read their opinion, they were very, very much in favor of the president having immunity from these subpoenas. But they said, oh, Trump loses. And it's almost... It's almost as if they ruled against Trump and not against the president. And I wrote the time piece in National Review saying that Trump nominees Gorsuch and Kavanaugh declare their independence from them. My biggest fear, my nightmare is that the court conservatives say, look, we're being attacked all the time as, you know, these people in Trump's pocket that he put us in the Supreme Court. What better way to push back against that norm than to kick him off the ballot? I don't think they'll do that, but I think that sort of ruling would, 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 is not beyond the realm of possibility. And, and you know, if it comes to be that two or more of the Trump appointees actually vote to knock Trump off the ballot, you know, what does that do for the conservative legal movement? I mean, we talk about this a lot. I mean, it's it, it's such an insane ruling that you have John Roberts and Kavanaugh and or Barrett and or Gorsuch join the court's liberals to take Trump off the ballot. Say, look, see, we're not partisans. I think that would have spillover effects in ways we can't quite anticipate. Mm-hmm. And look, I don't know that the people accept that ruling, right? In other words, this is the famous story to actually happen where Andrew Jackson told John Marshall, you know, you made your ruling go enforce it. Never actually happened, but it's true. I mean, at some point when the courts issue rulings, uh, why are they going into effect? Uh, do red states start kicking Biden off the ballot? I mean, Trump wasn't going to be in Colorado anyway. It was never going to happen. So you might have a situation where half the states say, you know what? Biden's engaging in insurrection at the southern border, Right. There's an, there's an invasion, there's an insurrection there. He's engaging in it. He's giving aid and comfort to our foreign enemies. We can do this. He's on the ballot. Right. How many people involved in BLM rallies, uh, protests, will be, will be indicted for insurrection and can never hold office? Uh, so, look, I, a lot of the stuff about Supreme Court ethics is sort of just made up. You know, how, how, many, how many dollars did Justice Thomas spend on his RV? No one really cares about that question, <laughs> right? I mean, no, no one actually cares. It's just a way to create hot air. But this could be a flashpoint that could change this republic as we know it. Mm-hmm. If the court lets Trump on the ballots and, and people over Trump, we get the present we deserve, right? We, we get who we deserve. If after everything that happened the last four years, Trump still wins, that's what we deserve, right? That's what we get. But if the Supreme Court decides to play God and says, you know, we're going we're gonna to fix this. We're going to make sure that the people protected from themselves um, you know, that sort of inverts what Madison said in Federalist 10. The reason why we have conflict is because we can't trust government to be angels, right? We, we, have to, we have to let people make their own decisions, let ambition check ambition, and, and, and that, that's the way our government works. Josh, thank you so much for coming on. Is there anything I missed, any other points uh, relevant to the case that you think are worth mentioning? It's going to move quickly, and I'm just warning you, there's going to be a lot of really bad scholarship that comes out in the next couple of weeks. <laughs> Seth and I wrote out one Fantastic. such piece. <laughs> And, and my point is, stuff that's written quickly under the gun during litigation, just don't believe it right away. Mm-hmm. Let it percolate a bit. I mean this sincerely. There's going to be a lot. I mean, we've already seen some of it. There's going to be some stuff people just make stuff up. They think, aha, I'm an expert. I, I, can, I can do research. And there are a lot of bodies buried that people don't know where they are. Mm-hmm. So proceed with caution. <laughs> thanks for that warning, Josh. And thanks so much for giving us a rundown of the case. Thank you so much. All right, GC, given all this talk about presidential power and presidential immunity, I thought it might be interesting to see what kind of involvement other presidents have had with the courts. Are you ready? I think so. Well, I'll start out with, uh, I thought this was an interesting one, 
what U.S. president has his name attached to the most U.S. Supreme Court cases? So uh, I suspect this is a trick question, Zach. Well, I do love trick questions, so you are correct. Uh, you are correct. <laughs> it must be William Howard Taft, right? Because uh, because he was chief justice after he was the president, so uh, his name would be on hundreds. Yeah, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. Well, starting off with a uh, <laughs> with a strong showing here, ah, but, you didn't fall for the Zach, trick. But but actually, maybe maybe uh, I did fall for the trick because uh, he wasn't president when his name appeared on all those on all those opinions. We'll give it to you. That's close enough for uh, for horseshoes and uh, trivia on SCOTUS 101. <laughs> All right, GC, let's stick with William Howard Taft. Now, we know, of course, that William Howard Taft sat on the court after his term as president had ended, but another president, uh, yet to be president, was actually nominated and declined to serve on the court. Who was this future president that declined to serve on the Supreme Court? I think that was John Quincy Adams. Yeah, that's exactly right. Uh, James Monroe nominated Adams for a seat on the Supreme Court in 1810 while Adams was serving as minister to Russia. Uh, but Adams declined, saying that, quote, I am too much of a partisan to be a judge. Interesting. Well, that's a principal position. It is. Well done, GC. Two for two on the trivia so far today. <laughs> Thanks. Let's see if I can keep it up. Well, we'll see. Now, the next one is a little bit of a tougher question. Uh, I actually found it very interesting when I was researching uh, these questions. But I found out that eight future or past presidents have argued cases before the Supreme Court. Now, I won't ask you to name all eight of these future or past presidents. But here's my question. Who was the most recent future president to argue a case before the Supreme Court? Oh, that's interesting. I, I don't know. I know it's not anybody recently. Well, uh, I guess it, but I don't know. That's that's fair. This is a tough question, uh, and I guess it depends on how you define recently. Uh, I was surprised to learn it was actually Richard Nixon uh, was the mm -hmm. most recent uh, president to have argued a case, and he actually argued a case in 1966 called Time versus Hill. This case involved members of a family who had been held hostage by escaped convicts years earlier. And they wanted to avoid any publicity surrounding this event. Uh, fortunately, they escaped unharmed, uh, but they wanted to avoid the limelight. Unfortunately for them, Life magazine ran a story about a Broadway reenactment uh, of this event that was in the works. So the Hill family brought an abuse of privacy case uh, uh, seeking to vindicate uh, their privacy rights. Uh, Richard Nixon took the case, argued it at the court, generally received plaudits for his performance at the court. But unfortunately, uh, Nixon lost the case in a closely divided five to four decision. And if anyone is interested, the other presidents who argued before the court were John Quincy Adams, James K. Polk, Abraham Lincoln, James A. Garfield, William Howard Taft, Benjamin Harrison, and Grover Cleveland. It's uh, quite the distinguished uh, list. Yeah. All right, GC, one more for you. Uh, this, uh, this is a tough one. I'll, I'll admit, this is a tough one, but it's very interesting, I thought. According to the Washington Post, which, of course, can be a dubious uh, source of information, which president was sued by a Mississippi senator for injuries that the senator sustained that left him unable to ride his donkey? Unable to ride his donkey. 
<laughs> what a strange, uh, what a strange. We all have our own hobbies, GC. <laughs> <laughs> uh, how did the, how did the, well, I, I have no idea. Uh, I'm very curious about how this Mississippi senator uh, was injured by a U.S. president. Yeah, it was actually a, an interesting story. And believe it or not, it was JFK uh, was the president. Uh, so it's relatively recent. And according to this Washington Post article, Senator Hugh Lee Bailey of Mississippi sued JFK in 1962 for injuries he had sustained in a car accident two years earlier. Now, Kennedy wasn't part of the accident, but Bailey claimed that Kennedy's driver caused his injuries. JFK ultimately settled the suit for $17,500, which in today's dollars would be about $183,000. So not an insignificant chunk of change for the senator's loss of uh, riding his donkey. Just let that be a lesson to you. Don't interfere with senators and their donkeys. Uh, Words to live by. Words (laughs) to live by. Well, well done on trivia today, GC. Thanks, Zach. Well, that's it for today. Thank you to everyone for listening to SCOTUS 101. Please be sure to subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you listen. And as always, we'd appreciate if you left us a five-star rating. You can follow us on Twitter or X now at SCOTUS 101 and email us at SCOTUS 101 at heritage.org with your questions, comments, or ideas for future shows. You've been listening to SCOTUS 101, brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. Executive produced by Giancarlo Canaparo and Zach Smith. Sound designed by Lauren Evans, Mark Guiney, and John Pop. For more information, visit heritage.org.